0: Ezra chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. And other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,000 400 articles of gold and of silver. Shesh Bazaar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem.
1: Well it's fun to me to read Ezra chapter 2 and if you'd like to follow it along in the Bible it's on page 472. Page 472. Now these are the people of the province, who came up from the captivity of the exiles, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigphi, Rehum, and Barnah. The list of the men of the people of Israel the descendants of Parosh, 2,172, of Shephatiah, 372, of Aros, 775, of Pehath Moab, through the line of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, of Elam, 1,254, of Zati, 945, of Zakai, 760, of Barney, 642, of Bebai, 623, of Asgad. 1,222 of Adonikam, 666 of Bigvi, 2,056 of Aden, 454 of Ata through Hezekiah, 98 of Bezai, 323 of Jorah, 112 of Hashem, 223 of Gibar, 95. The men of Bethiah 123 of Netaphar 56 of Anathoth, 128, of Asmaveth, 42, of Kiriath, Jerim, Kefira and Beeroth 743, of Ramar and Gibar, 621, of Michmash, 122, of Bethel and Ai, 223, of Nebo, 52, of Magbesh, 156, of the other Elam, 1,254 of Harem, 320, of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725, of Jericho, 345, of Senar, 3,630. The priests, the descendants of Jediah through the family of Jeshua, 973, of Emma, 1,052, of Paschal, 1,247, of Harem, 1,017, the Levites, the descendants of Jeshua and Kadmiel of the line of Aviah, 74. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, 128. The gatekeepers of the temple, the descendants of Shalom, Atta, Talmon, Akub, Hatita, and Shobai, 139. The temple servants, the descendants of Zihar, Hasufa, Tabaioth. Keros, Siaha, Padon, Lebanah, Hagabah, Akub, Hagab, Shalmai, Hanan, Gidel, Gehar, Reiah, Rezin, Nikoda, Gazam, Uzza, Paseah, Basai, Aznar, Meunem, Nefusim, Backbook, Hakufa, Hahor, Basleth, Mahida, Harsha, Barkos, Sisera, Timar, Neziah, and Hatifa, the descendants of the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Sotai, Hasophereth, Peruda, Jala, Darkon, Gidal, Shephatiah, Hattel, Pokareth, Hazabayim, and Ami, the temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon, 392. The following came up from the towns of Tel-Mela, Tel-Harsha, Kerab, Adon, and Emma. But they could not show that their families were descended from Israel, the descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda, 652, and from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakoz, and Barzillai, a man who'd married a daughter of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Umin, uh, the Urim and Thumin. The whole company numbered 42,360. Besides there, at 7,337 uh, 7, male and female slaves, And they also had 200 male and female singers they had 736 horses 245 mules 435 camels and 6720 donkeys when they arrived at the house of the lord in jerusalem some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of god on its site according to their ability they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and a hundred priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. Like I say, it's great to see you here for the start of a new series, 124 names in chapter two. What is all that about? We're going to find out in a minute, but first we're going to pray. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord that that changes the heart by your spirit through your words. And I want to ask you very simply this afternoon that as we come to your words, so you will change our hearts. And please do that, Father, for, for our good and for your glory. And we pray in your name. Amen. Well, um, when I was about five years old, I was um, living down by the sea in Sussex. And um, my mom and dad decided they wanted a kitchen extension out into the garden. So um, they decided that they wanted a, a, a bigger kitchen and particularly that they wanted a big round table to go in the middle of it that we could all sit around uh, so that we could have our, our evening meal together. So the builders came and grew up in a little village, only one builders, pens the builders. So they got on the phone to them, they turn up in their van and, um, and I, I watched them do this. I think it was a, a fairly dull summer holidays and they, um, they dug a, a big sort of trench in our back garden. And then they put loads of hardcore into it and then they filled it up with concrete and then they, they built up the bricks one by one all the way around the outside, And then uh, they put in the floor and then the floor went wrong, they had to take it out and they put the floor back in again. And then they fitted it all out uh, with all the cupboards and everything. Uh, and then uh, eventually, last thing, they brought in the kitchen table and they plonked it in the middle. And, and only then could we all go in and enjoy our evening meal together sitting around the table. We used to stab each other under the table with forks and that kind of thing. That's the way it normally works. But in the book of Ezra, they similarly have a building project on the book of Ezra about 500 years before Jesus comes right at the end of the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah originally one scroll and it's been divided up into, into two, but Ezra has a building project on and they're going to build back Jerusalem. That's the idea. But they don't start with the foundations. That's what's so strange. They start, we're going to see in chapter three, with the, with the altar. Let's build an altar in the middle of Jerusalem. I mean, that, that's like starting a kitchen extension by plonking a kitchen table in the middle of the garden. You see, it's just it doesn't, doesn't seem to make, make a lot of sense laying a laying laying supper in the middle of the table in the middle of the garden on a table and then building an extension around it that's just genuinely not how you do it is it but in fact in chapters 1 and 2 they start even further back than that they start even further back have a look down at verse 1 uh, Sarah read it out to us you can see verses 1 and 5 up on the screen Verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Now compare that with verse 5. Have a look down at verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved... Prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And that's the theme of chapters one and two. Here, yeah, the Lord moves the heart. That's where it all starts. And and, and we're going to see a bit more. Uh, you'll see on the on the service sheet we're printed on there under two headings, just two headings this afternoon. Here's the first one Trust that God can move hearts. Trust that God can move hearts, and that's in uh, that's the whole of chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 of, of chapter 1. Because um, Ezra opens with God moving the heart of a, of a global emperor, of the, of the king, king of Persia, so that people can return, so that his, his people can go back to Jerusalem. That's what God does. And, and that is exactly what God said he was going to do in the prophets. So if you want the time scale, you can go back to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25. Ezra mentions that, doesn't he, in, in the very opening words of his, of his book. And Jeremiah counts the years until God's people are gonna return. Or, or if you wanted to know the name of the king who was gonna send God's people back, this global emperor Cyrus, you could go to Isaiah. This is written hundreds of years before Cyrus was even 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 born you can see that up on the screen a quote from Isaiah 44 verse 28 God speaking Cyrus is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please he will say Jerusalem let it be rebuilt and of the temple let its foundations be laid hundreds of years before Cyrus was even a thing And, and if you want to know a bit more about how Cyrus came to power, you can read all about that in the book of Daniel. He takes over from, uh, from Belshazzar. Uh, he's the king of uh, the Babylonians. He's having this fabulous party. He's having this wild sort of sensational binge. And he brings out all the gold and silver from the temple that he's, that he's nicked from Jerusalem. And he just mocks the God of the Bible. But, um, but the writing's on the wall, yeah? Literally. And that night in 539 bc other historians record this Herodotus is one of them cyrus's army divert a river extraordinary account and they just walk into babylon and take over take over the empire what happens then well if if you're interested in history uh, then what you need to do is just go west of here about a mile uh, to the british museum if you want to pick up the story from there there's a famous clay cylinder, one of the treasures of the British Museum, a uh, clay cylinder called the Cyrus cylinder. It's literally a mile away from here and, and on it Cyrus records his foreign policy. It's extraordinary. This is actually uh, a, a clay cylinder made during Cyrus's reign and he, and he explains how he wants to send people groups back to where they came from so that they pray for him. He believed that there were lots of gods in the world. He's a religious pluralist if you want to use those words. And so he thinks the best thing to do is to send people back to where they came from so that they can set up temples, pray for Cyrus, jobs again. The thing is, behind all of this, we know what's going on, which is God is moving Cyrus's heart. That's what it says. The Lord moves the heart. And that's why a pagan king sends people back to build a temple for their gods. More, more than that, he pays for it. Verse 4. The Lord can move the heart of, of a global emperor. You have to be very powerful to do that. And more than that, the, the Lord can move the hearts of his exiled people so that they want to go back. Um, just around the corner from us, there's a, a Tailored shop and uh, I've got to know the guy there a guy called Zach and uh, the other day was a bit of a quiet morning and he told me his life story and um, he was there with his son in the shop and uh, he'd escaped from the Taliban the Taliban came looking for him to murder him and he uh, managed to escape with his family and came to uh, came to London they just picked up their things in a suitcase and fled he's never been back and I asked him if, if he'd ever want to go back to uh, Kabul which I think is where he's from and he said I uh, said no we're very happy here in London thank you we're very very happy to be here in England or I had lunch on Friday with a guy called Gama Gama Bishaw uh, another friend of mine his family had come from Ethiopia uh, and they settled in London. He's now a uh, first-generation um, British-born. The point is this. Not, not all displaced people want to go back from the place that their families came from. Why, why would you? And the exiles in Babylon must have settled down. They must have settled down, mustn't they? It's been at least a generation since they went there. Babylon was a sophisticated city because people had made their homes there. And, and you know what it's like when you've you know you've been in an area for a while, you um, you know you get to know the transport network, you know where all the buses go, um, you um, you know you've got a job there, you know the place that makes the flat white in exactly the way that you like. It's nice, isn't it, when you know a place? Why would you want if you were if you were an exile? Why would you want to go to a broken down, ruined city? You know, it's like asking Sophie and Chris at the back there to up sticks and start living in Aleppo. I mean, you just, you, you wouldn't. Unless God had moved your heart. Verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved. That's 42,360 people, according to chapter 2. You get the feeling that Ezra is a sort of spreadsheet man, don't you? As you read through. As you read through chapter 2 the Lord moves the heart That's what he does because he, he cannot be defeated you know ultimately the Bible is not about us it's about God it's important we gather in our minds the Bible's not primarily about us although we get caught up in this amazing plan of God to save a people the Bible is primarily about God and, and so that all that silver and, and gold in chapter one, verses seven to eleven, all those dishes, just a sort of token of something bigger about God. See Nebuchadnezzar. We said that the king of Babylon had stripped the temple of everything valuable, and he'd uh, stuck it in his kitchen cupboards, and uh, he imagined that the God of the Bible was finished. that 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 God was old news and that he died and gone away he'd been defeated old news but now Nebuchadnezzar was old news and he died and gone away and every single article from the temple is counted out and sent back to Jerusalem you see that delicious detail exactly 5,400 articles the Lord can't be defeated he can't be mocked He'll, he'll win. That is the God of the Bible, Chad. That's who he is. He's in control, and he's driving history forwards. He's driving history forwards. Doesn't make mistakes. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's in perfect control. Um, we um, So Dor and I drive a, a silver Prius and people are constantly confusing us for an Uber. So from time to time, we'll sort of pull up, you know, to pick up the kids or something, and complete strangers will just get in the back uh, and uh, expect me to take them to Marble Arch or something. And I have to explain that we're not an Uber, and um, it's just a private car. It just happens to look like an Uber. And uh, just this week, I I parked on uh, Highbury Station Road, if you you know that road. And um, uh, another Uber driver, pulled up next to me um, and asked me to wind down the window oh here we go Um, so I wound down the window and um, and I said look I I know I drive a silver Prius, Uh, I'm not actually an Uber driver and he said um, he said oh I know I know Um, but it's my first day in this kind of car and I've no idea how to drive it (laughs) and so I, I had to show him how to drive a you know, how to drive a prayer seems totally out of control. I had no idea. I I, I don't know if you took an Uber last week, but um I hope you didn't get him. God isn't like that. He's he's in control. He knows he knows what he's doing. Although he warns us that he won't always feel like that. Okay, and I know that sometimes things feel quite chaotic. I don't know whether you're comfortable with the driver of of the world. But nothing takes him by surprise. He's driving history forwards. And he alone can move people's hearts in order to achieve his well. And so it should come as no surprise to us at all. When we come to the sort of turning point, the fulcrum of the whole of human history, in, in this apparent chaos of Good Friday, if, if you've read about that, when Jesus is tortured to death by the Roman state, should come as no surprise that God is in full control of the pagan kings that Jesus encounters. He's in full control. Uh, The um, apostles say that in Acts chapter 4, when they're praying, they they talk about Pontius Pilate and Herod, and they say in Acts chapter 4 that God was doing what his power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That was exactly what God had planned. that his, his son should die the death that we deserve, so that we could be treated in the way that he deserved. There's this incredible swap at the heart of history, and God is bringing that about. Pontius Pilate and Herod are carrying out the, to the detail the things that God has predicted hundreds of years before in the Bible. He's fulfilling his word, and he's, he's in full control of the death of his son. And that is the God who can rebuild his people. He can rebuild his people. The Lord moves the heart. Now, I know that over, over lockdown, it's been, a, it's been a hard 18 months. You know, and a lot of people at Trinity have worked incredibly hard during the pandemic. The church hasn't ceased to exist. That's, you know, it's an amazing thing. I'm incredibly grateful to the people who've been working away behind the scenes. An amazing time of adapting and trying new things and reaching new people. But if the pandemic has left us feeling tired and a bit less sure of things, then we won't re energize our church just by starting lots of events. You know, we, we start by getting on our knees because it's God who moves the heart. I mean, we need to prepare we need to pray, um, verse five, that, that God will prepare us to go up and build the house of the Lord, build his church. Yeah, do you agree? Because it's Jesus who promises that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so and so we pray that God will move our hearts. I'd love you to I'd love you to pray that for your church. He would strengthen us. Trust that God can move hearts. That's the first point. But when people are moved like this, what happens? What does it look like? How do people change? And chapter 2 is like a worked example. I always like worked examples. When, when I was at university, they'd give me the theory. And then they give me a worked example. Okay, I'm starting to see how it works. And so Ezra gives us a worked example of this sort of heart transformation in chapter 2. And as as the first readers of Ezra would have heard this list of names being being read out to them, they would have felt respect, they would have felt gratitude, and and, and they would want their hearts to be moved in the same way that these guys' hearts were moved. And so that's our other point this afternoon. Long for hearts moved by God. It's not just that God can move hearts. If that's true, then we should long for our hearts to be moved moved by the God of the Bible, because these people have a new purpose, and, and that's worship. So have a look down at, at chapter 2, and uh, you see the leaders come first. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Zerubbabel, he's, um, he's not the king, but he's descended from David, and um, It's a reminder that God hasn't forgotten his promises to keep someone descended from David on the train. And then there's Joshua. This is a different Joshua from from the one who comes right at the start of of the Old Testament. But he's a priest. It's it's just a reminder, isn't it? God still wants to know his people. He wants to relate to them. And then in verses 3 to 20, you get the descendants of. 3 to 20, that's that long list. And then you get the... uh, the men of places like Bethlehem, it works all the way around the, around the compass verse 21. It starts the, the, the men of Bethlehem, people identified by where they come from. But notice after that, how the list goes off in a particular direction. It's interesting. So um, who do you get verse 40? You get the, the Levites, who work in the temple. Then you get the, the musicians, who are going to sing in the temple, I guess. Then you get the gatekeepers of the temple in verse forty-two. Then you get the temple servants in verse forty-three. And you can start to see the direction this in going. It, it's not builders and decorators, is what I'm saying. These are people who are going to enable God's people to worship. This is what's going to be important. What God wants to be important for His people. It's where the re. Reformation, the rebuilding of God's people, is going to begin. Uh, We've been going through some of my dad's things. He he died a year ago. And um, uh, this is like a a graduation list. They're not not very interesting, are they? A whole list of names uh, from the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Uh, But who do they put first in the procession? We have the procession list. And uh, the people that come first are the research fellows because um, Royal College of Surgeons wants to emphasize research. That's what they think is most important. And in in the same way, God wants his people to be not research-led, but worship-led. Hearts that are moved by God are, first of all, moved to worship. And their hearts that recognise that the God of the Bible is is worthy, He's worthy of honour and praise and reverence and respect. And and so they want to respond to His glory and His Majesty with um, with every last centimetre of their life, every last millimetre of what they do. They want to be a, in response to God. That's what worship means in the Bible. It doesn't mean um, it's it's not. It's, not exclusively singing on a Sunday. This is reorientating our whole lives around a majestic God, God of incredible glory. A whole life response to God as He really is. God's people have a new purpose, worship, and then they have a new focus, which is purity. Comes in. I um, uh, well, have looked down at verse fifty-nine. Verse fifty-nine. Some people couldn't show that their families were descended from Israel. Now, It's not like this isn't racial discrimination. Uh, These people are going to be, I think that's the hope, included. uh, Verse 63, when the Urim and Thummim is available. But there's a right concern for purity. because people want to get it right this time. They want to be distinctive. They want to be different in the same way that Christians want to be distinctive in what they say and... And what, and, and what they look at the sort of websites they go to the way they talk about people the way they refuse to gossip all kinds of different ways that Christians want to be different purity a new focus and then a new attitude which is radical generosity you see that right at the end radical generosity have a look down at verses 68 and 69 it's just over the page if you've got one of the red bibles there verses 68 and 69, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, interesting that, isn't it? They gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, 100 priestly garments, spontaneous giving. Generosity, staggering amounts, breathtaking amounts in response to the God's Who had brought them back? I just want to give to him. Um, I'm I'm not a great historian, but um, I read this week about Frederick, the Third of Prussia. At the beginning of the 19th century, Prussia had run out of money. Apparently, I think basically, they spent all on their army. And um, Frederick the Third asked the people of Prussia to give him their gold jewelry and they did in large amounts and, and when they did say so, he gave them uh, a, an iron cross a little cross made of iron and it said on the back I gave gold for iron and in the same way you know when we when we're people of the cross We'll 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 give up what we have. We'll be generous because we know what we've been given. So what are Christians? They're they're people who have a, a purpose, worship. They want to put God central in their lives as he really is, as he exists in history. Say, you know, Lord, you deserve all the honor, all the praise all the reverence and respect, it begins there. If you've never said that to God, why not say that tonight? You sovereignly sent Jesus to the cross for me where you won a great victory, and I worship you. Thank you. People who have a purpose, worship, and people who have a, a new focus, purity, distinctiveness, Remember, there was a preacher called, uh, there still is a preacher called David Jackman, but he um, came in and spoke to us. He's he's been in ministry for 60 years and he stood exactly where I'm standing and he told us as a church. I don't know whether you remember this. It's really stuck in my mind. He said, churches that grow are churches where Christians are being distinctive. That's what he said. That was his reflection on 60 years of ministry. Desire for Purity. And churches like that will have a new attitude of generosity, spontaneous, relational, cheerful, sincere, radical. We give our gold because we gain the cross on which Jesus Christ died. But it's the Lord who moves the heart. So, should we pray for hearts like that? Should we do that? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this extraordinary account at the end of the Old Testament where you show total control over history in the way that you move the heart of a a Persian emperor. And then you move the hearts of your people to be obedient, to have a desire to worship you, a desire to live distinctive lives and a desire to be generous with what they have. And I pray, Father, we would be so... um, So moved by the way in which you bring about the cross of Jesus Christ, the way in which he dies in our place so that we can have all the benefits that that should be his. I pray, Father, we would be so amazed at that, that you would move our hearts to respond to you in the way that you will. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.